Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Nearly 38 million people are living with HIV around the globe. Yes, I said 38 million people. That's a lot of people. One bright spot is that new HIV infections have been reduced and AIDS-related mortality have declined. However, my friends, this fight is far, far from over and this disease continues to threaten all of us, every single one of us. This podcast will explore different perspectives in the fight against AIDS. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Liz. Dr. Liz is an infection disease specialist and has been practicing medicine in the state of New York for over 20 years now. Hi, Dr. Liz. Welcome to our podcast. I'm very excited in sitting with you and uh, understand your background and now your perspective in a fight against AIDS. So, Dr. Liz, you could give us your background uh, as we start this kind of going back and forth here. That would be amazing. <clears throat> so, I grew up as a physician uh, in the AIDS epidemic. I, When I was in medical school, people talked about um, gay-related immunodeficiency. This was a fearful condition. We didn't know what caused it. We wore gowns and gloves. And then throughout my residency, which was 85 to 88, I took care of people who had AIDS in New York City and saw many individuals succumb to complications of AIDS, basically opportunistic infections. And it, this was a time when the information was emerging about what the risk factors were. So it was really unclear what was going on. And then eventually we got a better handle on this virus that was transmitted either by blood or by sex. And eventually we got to a period of time where we're basically giving people drugs to fight the virus and us just fighting the complications. So my entire professional career started during the AIDS epidemic, and then I became an infectious disease specialist and took a job in an AIDS clinic in 1990. And so I've basically been watching how HIV AIDS has unfolded on many different fronts, which I'll be happy to elaborate on. Yeah. Well, uh, what attracted you to be in the AIDS field back in the 1980s when nobody was touching this? I think I, think I always wanted to do something meaningful and surviving a, you know dealing with dealing with a deadly disease brings us to the kind of the roots of what's meaningful like what makes life worth living why do why do people fear death i think it was an attraction to these much bigger questions of the meaning of life that made me want to take care of patients who were dying was part of it because I had wanted to be an oncologist actually. Oh wow! And but the Not other a big thing, shift. Well, yeah. Well, sort of. Yes and no. And the other thing was infectious diseases was so interesting because infectious diseases was the first example I think in medicine, really the first example in medicine where if you deployed a magic bullet, you could completely change the trajectory of a person's illness and life. And the term magic bullet in medicine really originated with the first syphilis drug, which was either arsenic or mercury, I can't remember, but it was, I think it was arsenic 606, you know, developed by 
Paul Ehrlich, and it was called a magic bullet because people succumbed to all sorts of horrific, horrific complications of syphilis until there was a magic bullet. And then came TB therapy, which completely transformed a deadly disease. And so in infectious diseases, and then in my, at, when I was training, it was IV drug abusers with endocarditis. And, you know, they were terribly sick. And if you gave them the right antibiotic, they all of their myriad manifestations of disease just turned around with the right antibiotic. Wow. So infectious diseases really attracted me because it was so intellectually, satisfyingly all-encompassing. And then dealing with a deadly disease sort of satisfied my kind of spiritual quest for an engaging job. And I have not been disappointed in either domain, and I would do not in any way regret or I mean I totally enjoyed my career and I'm still enjoying practicing medicine. We are glad that you are. Well thank you. You're very charming. <laughs> thank you. you funny. Can edit that out. <laughs> um, there is a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding who is who is at, at risk of contact contracting HIV. <clears throat> who is at risk of contracting HIV? So risk is a moving target and you know Anyone is at risk who has sex with somebody who has HIV. And so, but the reason I say it's a moving target is we, you know, early on, globally, globally, the biggest risk for transmission is sex, you know, any kind of sex. Um, so global, but so, but in terms of looking at say New York City, which is where we live now, which is where I practice now, the the, the big risk, and I tell you this from my experience seeing who's walking in the door with newly identified HIV, where I work, who I see walking in the door with newly diagnosed HIV is mostly young gay men who don't have knowledge of the risks and as a result don't have information about protection, about how to protect themselves from those risks. So I take care of a lot of relatively impoverished, probably not terribly well-educated individuals who, had they known about preventive strategies, probably would have done things differently. But globally, that's not the only risk factor for HIV. The other group of patients I see are patients from poor countries where there's not a lot of AIDS education and where HIV prevalence generally tends to be higher. And so I do see a lot of people who are from parts of the world where I have the sense, but I don't know firsthand, there isn't as much AIDS information or HIV information, although I think that's changing. I think many countries are implementing policies. Certainly, you know, testing women in pregnancy is a huge opportunity to educate people about STDs and sexual transmission of HIV and such. But so when I say AIDS is a moving, risk factors are a moving target, I can give you a concrete example for New York City. I've looked at the New York City HIV statistics over since they've been collected, which is since about 1987. In 1987, they were collected on a piece of paper. Wow. It was 78 cases, and they were almost all gay men with maybe one or two women, but literally listed on a piece of paper. And I show this slide when I give lectures. And then the AIDS surveillance has been ongoing ever since the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And so early on in the epidemic, it was a lot of gay men and then it became gay men and IV drug users with a smattering of women and babies. And it was actually HIV in babies that was what 
showed people that HIV could be passed from mother to child because the baby got it from the mother, didn't get it from the father. And it was really AIDS in babies that was the key observation for heterosexual transmission. Could you elaborate how the mother can pass to the child? So mother to child transmission occurs when mothers are infected and have uncontrolled HIV viremia. Mother to child transmission has almost been eliminated currently if women are identified in pregnancy and put on antiretroviral therapy during pregnancy almost all women achieve an undetectable viral load and as a result those women generally do not pass the HIV on to their baby early on in the 1990s the first drug that was used to fight HIV was tried in pregnant women and that drug was shown to prevent mother to child transmission in a, women with somewhat preserved immune systems. And so the rate of transmission went from 25% down to 8%. So it didn't go from 100% to zero, but it certainly was the first clue that you could prevent mother to child transmission. Now that we have much more HIV testing, most pe women coming into prenatal care or women contemplating pregnancy have an opportunity to get an HIV test. And if they're identified as being HIV positive, they can go on medication and become pregnant with an undetectable viral load. So the goal of our treatment is to suppress the virus to a level that's undetectable. So if women are contemplating pregnancy or are in the early stages of pregnancy, women are offered an HIV test and Properly, women need to be told that at least in New York State, and I'm not sure what the rules are in the other parts of the country, all babies are checked for HIV, which is kind of default testing of the mother without consent. But it's done to, because the baby has a compelling need to know. But most women accept testing. Most women want to protect their baby, so it's not usually a contentious issue. But for women who don't want to be tested, if you tell them, well, you're going to get tested anyway at the end of pregnancy, the goal is really to protect the mother and protect the baby. So women are tested, and they're typically started on medications either before they get pregnant or early in pregnancy, even later in pregnancy. And the rates of transmission of HIV from mother to child are practically zero, as long as women are started in a timely manner. Can a breastfeeding HIV positive so, mother transmit? You know, that's actually very interesting. So I don't I'm not a specialist in maternal fetal issues or pediatric issues, but I think there's emerging um, recognition that if women's viral loads are adequately controlled, breastfeeding may actually be safe. It's generally not recommended in the United States because we have a safe water supply and we have the availability of infant formula. In other parts of the world where safe water cannot be taken for granted, the equation is different. And uh, I'm no expert, but I think it's a move that it's a move in the same way that risk factors are a moving target. I think recommendations are context specific. You mentioned early on that prevention key against HIV AIDS in a fight against it. How do we empower people to overcome the barriers to access HIV prevention services? So it depends what you consider an HIV prevention service. So I think the most important strategy is really good education. So I take care of 
individuals who come from parts of the world where there's so much HIV stigma that they won't share a plate of food with someone who has HIV. But on the other hand, they have no problem having unprotected sex, no questions asked. And so I, I don't know how you get over that. I think part of it is, the rec is teaching people and I don't know how you really teach this because it's many, it's many fold. Because part of the problem about AIDS is the traditional association with the risk factors. And too many societies have extraordinary taboos about those issues. And people don't even want to broach risk for HIV because that might imply connection with those taboo risk groups. And you know, I joke, when I was a kid growing up, I understood the germ theory. You know, my mother was terrified that I would get sick. I would catch germs, like if some other kid was coughing, yeah. I shouldn't go near them. Mm -hmm. So I grew up understanding the invisible danger of germs. She didn't, my mother didn't vilify the person, she vilified the cough. Or, I mean, she wasn't really that neurotic. And I love my mother, and I, God knows, I wish, I hope my mother doesn't think I'm saying anything bad about her. <laughs> but I think in many societies, I think many people really don't understand that germs, viruses, things you can't see can be agents of disease rather than behaviors. Like in the case of HIV, certainly behaviors can amplify the potential for the transmission of the infectious agent. But I think it's a big strategy to try to educate a society to, to understand HIV as not being a curse of God, not being a punishment for thinking unclean thoughts. And I think it goes so deep into people's collective social psychologies. I'm sort of not answering the question as well. So I, I sort of- <laughs> How do you confront this stigma, I guess, HIV? Uh... Well, you know, in terms of patients, it's every patient is, is different. For people who are very religious, I say, in the Bible, God loves all his children. And you're one of his children. And I may not say those exact words, but that's kind of what I want to imply. And because um, the stigma, it's a huge thing. Now that we have great medicines to deal with the actual medical problem of HIV, people really suffer from feeling that they're somehow less worthy of being loved by people they care about. So people won't tell their family, won't tell their children, won't tell their mother, their brothers. And and this is like, you know, I even though we have great medicine, each solution exposes another layer of problem. And in a way, we haven't cured AIDS. We certainly, certainly people with HIV live very normal lives and have to take you know, a pill every day, but for the most part, feel well, look well, function, productive in society. We've solved that problem a lot, and we're probably even gonna have a cure. You know, it'll be expensive, but it'll get yeah. scaled up. But what's left behind is all of the things that AIDS means to somebody, whether it's feeling betrayed by a partner, whether it's feeling stigmatized by being associated with a group that's taboo in a society. So for each patient, it's a different 
strategy to try to unravel the shame and the pain. And But it's not that way for everybody. Speaking of solution, treatment is one of the closest things we have to a solution uh, today. Mm-hmm. How can someone in need obtain cost-effective access to HIV medication in New York City, for example? Oh, well, New York City is blessed with resources. So the resources for New York City are the New York State um, Ryan White program, the ADAP program. So anyone with HIV who's in New York City, whether they're here legally or not legally, if they're in New York City and not in New, in New York and not in New Jersey, and they have HIV, they can get the New York State public insurance through the Ryan White program, it's New York State ADAP, which pays for all of the HIV care. That means the clinic visits, it means the laboratory monitoring, it means the medications, and it also pays for a lot of primary care services. So care for diabetes, hypertension, asthma, depression, migraines, pretty much the gamut of outpatient diseases that patients have. So New York City, anyone with HIV can get care, no questions asked. Like I'm telling you, they provide care because in the end, it's, co- it's really cost effective to take care of people. I have patients that I'm taking care of since the late 1990s on meds who've never been in the hospital. That's incredible. Getting ready to retire. I mean, one of them actually, he's going to retire before me. So, I'm, I, I mean, I think, you know, so, a, you know, these medicines are revolutionary in terms of prolonging life. And in New York State, particularly in the, like the public hospitals all know this because we're accustomed to taking care of people who don't have resources. It's the working poor that sometimes don't find out about this. And this program, this New York State AIDS, AIDS drug assistance program, actually will often pay for the difference between what a person's less than optimal insurance will pay and you know what their out-of-pocket, ADAP will pay the, the out-of-pocket costs, will act as a secondary supplemental insurance. So for treatment, Treatment is really available in New York City and really in New York State, as long as you know how to access it. I have a somewhat of a personal question for you. So uh, as a parent, how do you help us as a parent and someone who has been in the forefront of AIDS treatment, AIDS you know, awareness, how do, we, how do you help us parents to feel comfortable with the uncomfortable and add HIV AIDS related topics as part of, of the talk with our kids. So that's really it's sort of a it's that sort of a question in disguise. For my two daughters, it's very easy. It, it was pretty easy because first of all, they're much more like you know outspoken with me. In fact, when my daughter was 13, she was on her way to a party with a bunch of other kids, and she goes, she calls me on the phone, and she goes. Right, Mom, can you tell them that there's such a thing as a female condom? <laughs> she was about 13 at the time. So, you know, I've told my kids, you know, you, I've told my kids, you know, you can't look at someone and know if they have HIV. You absolutely don't know. I mean, you cannot tell, and I mean, I tell this to my patients, like you cannot say someone looks clean or they went to a good college or they have a good job, they, they don't have HIV. I tell them, you just don't know. You can't tell, period. What do you think is the future of the fight against HIV? Well, I'm not a a biologist or a bench scientist. 
I try to keep up by reading The New Yorker, and there's incredible technology that's been discovered, discovered in the bacterial world, that there's a mechanism for bacteria to excise genetic material, including viruses, from their genome. And so this system, it's called Cas-CRISPR, is being deployed as a kind of molecular tool to excise genetic genetic problems. Having a virus like HIV integrated into the DNA of a host is, an, is potentially a target for this technology. And so I think not being a real scientist, but just sort of trying to keep my ear to the, ear to the grindstone or whatever the expression is, I think there probably will be a cure. But I temper that statement with the knowledge, with the recognition that we have cures for tuberculosis, malaria, syphilis. These are still important diseases that haven't gone away. Having the technological cure will be necessary, but it won't be sufficient to eradicate AIDS. And to the extent that diseases prey on vulnerable populations, vulnerable for a variety of different reasons, our fight against AIDS also has to be a fight for justice and protect and empowerment empowerment of vulnerable people. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to, to us. And uh, I'm excited to, and I think we learned a lot and I uh, appreciate your time and oh, thank uh, you. what you do for the community as well. Thank you. Okay.